Read our passage for this morning. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Luke 18, 9 to 14. He told he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May the Lord write the truths of his eternal and precious word upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of our church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Holy, holy, holy God. As we approach you in prayer, as we approach you in your word, We get a glimpse of who you are. We also get a glimpse of ourselves. We pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would reveal yourself to our hearts and reveal ourselves to our hearts and to our minds and to our eyes, Lord, that we might cling to you, come to you, pray to you, worship you for who you are in the only way that is possible. Through Jesus Christ, God, the Son incarnate. Help us, I pray, Heavenly Father, to see our need and that Christ meets every need through his gospel. We pray this in his name. Amen. David Rhodes once said, pride is the dandelion of the soil, of the soul rather. Its root goes deep, only a little left behind sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest cracks and it flourishes in good soil. He said the danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. Now, try to figure out who David Rhodes is. There's several David Rhodes. There's a a CBS executive named David Rhodes. There's a, a, a draft prospect of the Seattle Mariners named David Rhodes. There's a, uh, there's a, a, uh, an author named David Rhodes. I don't know which David Rhodes said this, but he was really onto something. There's really much to agree with what David Rhodes said. Now, dandelions might have some value, like in a medicinal tea, as I had for the first time yesterday. But, but in, in our yards, 
dandelions are a noxious weed. Now, a dandelion, if you look at it carefully, it looks like a pretty little flower. But a dandelion is notoriously invasive and difficult to eradicate. A light summer breeze will scatter seeds and the little sails all over your lawn. And before you know it, there's more dandelions popping up everywhere. And when you try to remove a dandelion, if you don't get all of the root, if you don't get that, that big tap root out, what's going to happen? It's going to spring up again. Now, Rhodes got some of it right. But here's where Rhodes was on the wrong track. He said that, that dandelions are like pride and that they grow in good soil. But the reality is that pride reveals bad soil. The so-called good soil in which dandelions flourish is nothing but manure. Now, manure might be good for growing weeds, but if your heart is full of manure, you are in big trouble. Pride is heart manure. Now, the world loves proud people. Think about the actors and athletes and the affluent and academics who are all on the A-list. A as in arrogant. They are celebrated by our culture, but pride is their necklace. As Asaph tells us in Psalm 73, 6, their, their pride indicts them. Now there's all kinds of pride. There's intellectual pride and athletic pride. There's, there's all different types of pride, but religious pride is the worst kind of pride. Because religion is, by definition, man relating to God. And if there's anything that should humble the human heart, it's relating to God. Because when you begin to approach God, you begin to see the manure in your heart. Now, the apostles, the apostle Paul's heart was once full of the manure of spiritual pride. Remember, the Apostle Paul was not always the Apostle Paul. He used to be Saul the Pharisee. In Philippians 3, he lists his, his credentials as a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Saul was a prominent Pharisee and an up-and-coming Pharisee, according to his religion. And Saul, the Pharisee, was bent on the destruction of the church. He approved of the stoning of Stephen. He was headed to Damascus with letters to, to bring back men and women in chains back to Jerusalem for arrest and very probably for execution. This is when Jesus knocked Saul of Tarsus off of his high horse. Jesus humbled him and sent him on to Damascus once with the goal of destroying the church and now tasked with the, with the, the job of building the church, of building up the church that he once sought to destroy. And now in Philippians 3.8, 
through the eyes of Christian humility, the Apostle Paul now viewed his former life of self-righteousness as dung, as manure. The things, things that he was once proud of, the things that once consumed his heart, he now considered refuse, filth. As we consider this passage this morning, you need to, through the power of the Spirit, to ask yourself the question, is your heart full of the manure of pride? The Bible has a lot to say about pride. Not only do we have the Proverbs, like when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble comes wisdom, Proverbs 11.2. Or pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16.8, 18 rather. We also have the Psalms. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Psalm 31, 23. Or Psalm 59, 12. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. The prophets speak of pride. Isaiah 2, 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Speaking of the day of the Lord. Pride led to Moses' anger and kept him out of the promised land in Numbers 20. Pride led to David's census that killed 70,000 of his countrymen in 2 Samuel 24. Pride led to Nebuchadnezzar becoming like a wild beast in Daniel 4. It continues into the Gospels. In the Gospels, you see Jesus regularly confronting the pride of the Pharisees. But it wasn't just the Pharisees. The disciples were full of pride as well. It was pride that made James and John John try to manipulate their way into positions of authority in the kingdom of God. And it was also pride that led the other, other disciples to be indignant against them for their pride in Mark 10. It was pride that blinded Peter to his weakness and resulted in his denial of Jesus three times, even calling down curses on himself in Matthew 26. It was pride that kept the the disciples from bowing to wash the feet of the other disciples in John 13, and Jesus provided the example of humility for them by doing it himself. 1 John 2.16 warns, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And all of this pride goes back to Genesis 3. Where Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. It's come to the the temptation of the devil. And ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And people have been proud ever since. In fact, you could say that, that, that pride leads to virtually every other form of sin that there is. That whatever sin it is, whether it's, whether it's lust or whether it's gluttony or, or whether it's fear or whatever it is, pride is at its root, somewhere in there. Do you want to know how proud you are? Consider your prayer life. Because prayer reveals pride. Listen again to this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that I read last week. Prayer is beyond question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. 
And therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. A man discovers the real condition of a spiritual life when he examines himself in private, when he's alone with God. We're going to see very clearly as we study Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We're going to see pride. This is a parable about pride versus humble prayer. If you remember the parable that we looked at last week, the parable of the the importunate or the, the, um, the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. In that, in that parable, we saw who we're praying to and how we should pray. Well, this week we're going to see the heart in prayer. The previous parable taught us bold confidence in prayer, and this parable teaches us the spirit of prayer. The previous parable encouraged us to not grow weary in prayer, and this parable reminds us of humility in prayer. So here in Luke 18, 9-14, we have another parable that centers on prayer. The parable presents two men who are praying in the temple. One prays proudly, and the other prays with humility. And once again, Luke tells us the interpretation of the parable right from the start. Once again, the the key to this parable is hanging at the door. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The proud and the self-righteous see themselves as holy and they look down on others. They, They put themselves above others according to some spiritual pecking order. But in this this parable, Jesus explains that God judges according to a very different standard. It is the spiritually humble who truly come to God in faith and repentance. But the self-righteous be condemned, condemned before the holy God, while the humble, penitent sinner will be justified. And so the difference between Pride and humility that Jesus reveals is not just about about whether one prays the the right words in prayer, but what pride reveals that comes out in those words. A little later in this chapter, Jesus is going to say that it is easier for a camel to be squeezed through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, a big head and a proud heart can't squeeze through the pearly gates either. As Jesus' earthly ministry draws to a close, we're going to see that only those who respond to Jesus in faith will understand his role as king or will be able to enter into the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is is still in view. It's been in view ever since since, uh, Luke 17, 20. In fact, it's really been a theme throughout all of Luke's gospel account. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of God are definitely not on the world's A-list. That's increasingly the case, isn't it? We saw a Samaritan in Luke 17, and and we'll see a tax collector here in in Luke 18, followed by, by little children and a blind beggar and another tax collector in Luke 19. These are these are outsiders. Those are the culture views, especially the religious culture views, as those who be are being on the outside. These are exactly the sort of people 
that Jesus came to minister to, that, that Jesus came to call to come into his kingdom. But others, the, the selfish and the self-righteous, those who, who might be on the, the religious and, and cultural inside, will actually find themselves on the outside. So we see that the Pharisee in this parable rejecting God even while he prays. We're going to see the rich young ruler rejecting Jesus' invitation to sell everything and to follow him. So in our passage this morning, we we meet two men who are on really opposite ends of the religious and social culture. These two men represent two extremes in the religious authority during the time of Jesus' ministry. One had a reputation for being devout and living a holy life, while the other was considered to be an extortioner and a traitor. The, The Pharisee was a cog in the religious system. But the tax collector was hated by his countrymen. But it's the tax collector who will go home justified. Well, the Pharisee will go home condemned. Both men were in the temple. Both men prayed. But only one was saved. Now, these two men are fictional, but they represent the two types of people in the whole of the human race. And both kinds of people are at church this morning. Which one represents you? We're going to walk through this passage contrasting the the Pharisee and the tax collector in five major areas. May the Holy Spirit enable you and me to, to see ourselves truly through a biblical lens. May he help us to see ourselves rightly, and may he help us to see God rightly. So first of all, the Pharisee relied on himself as righteous, while the tax collector knew that he was a sinner. Again, the Pharisee was on the Jewish A-list. The Pharisees were were among the leaders of the Jewish religion. They had a reputation for being very spiritual. The Pharisees made made up part of the the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling council, but the Pharisees weren't the leaders of the Sanhedrin. That was the liberal Sadducees who denied the resurrection and even denied God's breaking into the world. The Pharisees also weren't the, the best educated That was the scribes, the the religious lawyers. The Pharisees weren't at the top of the religious hierarchy, but they were considered the most devout, and they considered themselves to be the most devout. They held the law in high regard. In fact, they had such high regard for the law that they developed a system of 613 additional laws, Mishnah, to keep them from breaking God's moral law. So they went far beyond anything that the the law of God commanded, added to the word of God, and attempted through their own efforts to try to keep themselves righteous. They were very diligent. They were fastidious in their obedience to the commands. But Luke tells us that, that this parable was for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. 
And this describes Pharisees in general. They, they viewed themselves as righteous. And this describes this Pharisee to a T, or rather it describes this Pharisee to an I. Listen to the, the, his list of accomplishments in his prayer. I, 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 I. Five eyes in one prayer. First of all, he says all the things that he isn't. Verse 11, I'm not like other men. I'm not like this tax collector. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And then he says all the things that he does in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of all I get. I, 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 I. I wonder, do you have a similar list? Do you have a similar list of eyes that, that, that define your righteousness? What's on your list? Now, the things that he says here, many of them are, are things that he says he isn't, are things that you shouldn't be either. It's not wrong to not be those things. In fact, the Bible is clear that we, that we shouldn't be many of those things. The Bible is clear that we should not be like other people. We should be different from the culture around us. Not for the sake of being different, but because we have a different spirit than the rest of the culture. We should be markedly different. You know, if it, if it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, it's a duck. But we should not be like that. We should be different. As the culture becomes more anti-theistic, and I didn't say atheistic, anti-theistic, as our culture becomes more immoral, we should stick out like a sore thumb. Rather, the light in us should shine more brightly as the backdrop around us darkens. So it's not wrong to... to to do or not to, it's not wrong to not do the things he says he didn't do. Likewise, it's not wrong to do the things that he did. Fasting twice a week isn't commanded in Scripture. In fact, it's it's actually only commanded once in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. It's as part of the ceremonial law. But you could fast for in focus for more focused prayer. Psalm thirty-five, thirteen. David fasted for the life of the of the child that, that was born to Bathsheba in Second Samuel twelve, fifteen. We also see David fasting out of mourning for Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel 1.12. Fasting can be out of penitence, like the people of Nineveh in, in, uh, in Jonah chapter 3, 5 to 9. There's also benefit to, to regular and special fasting. John's disciples fasted, Luke 5, 33-35. The, the early church fasted before sending Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. But there's no express command to fast in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus condemned the hypocritical fasting of the Pharisees in, in Matthew 6.16. Just after teaching on what we know as the Lord's Prayer, that I think better the model prayer or the pattern prayer, Jesus says that you shouldn't look gloomy. They shouldn't hang your face and hang it down, I'm fasting today. That you should do what you do before God and not before men. Now remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus taught that is criticism of the Pharisees adding to the law and their legalistic practices and their self-righteousness. Similarly, tithing is a, is a, is a, a, the giving of a tenth of your gross income is a biblical principle. 
Jesus affirmed this in, in Luke 11:42, where, where he pronounced woe on the Pharisees for their tithing practices. They tithe mint and rue and every herb. He says, these you ought to do. You ought to tithe carefully. But the problem with the Pharisees was that they neglected justice and the love of God. It was mere outward obedience. They forgot what tithing was supposed to be all about for the advance of God's kingdom and for the love of others. So that's the, that's the Pharisee's prayer. But the tax collector, on the other hand, stood far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew he was a sinner. He knew that he had no righteousness of his own. He knew that he had nothing to commend himself before the holy God. Again, the tax collectors were considered extortioners. They were considered traitors. And that's not wrong. They were extortioners. They were traitors. Tax collectors, again, collected taxes, not for the nation of Israel, but for their Roman occupiers. The the tax collectors would would charge a, a large fee on top of the tax and put it in their own pockets, often getting rich in the process. And again, we're going to meet a a very rich tax collector, Zacchaeus, next next time, well, later on in the next chapter in Luke 19. Zacchaeus actually confesses to Jesus that he had defrauded people, that he had stolen from people. It's part of his tax collection. This was, was a regular part of what they did. So that's the Pharisee and the tax collector. What about you? Which one are you more like, the, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Again, do you, do you have a you have a list of, of things you do and things you don't do? And your righteousness is, is based on these things. But how's your list line up with God's word? I read these authors. I don't read these authors. I listen to these preachers. I don't listen to those preachers. I listen to this music. I don't listen to that music. I wear this. I don't wear that. I eat this. I don't eat that. I wear a mask. I don't wear a mask. I got vaccinated. I didn't get vaccinated. Now it's fine. It's appropriate to have an opinion about these things. But do you make them the measure of your righteousness? Now, I've often heard people giving their testimonies. I didn't do this, and I didn't do that. Well, what you didn't do is the wrong starting point. Because the reality is that even if you didn't do all of those those external sins, the problem is you're still a sinner. The problem of a sinner is is not all the things that they do, it's what they are. It's what they are. You know, when I I try to share the gospel with with somebody, it doesn't matter whether they are moral or whether they are a drug addict or or whether they are a self-righteous prude, it's the same gospel. Because their biggest problem is not what they do, it is what they are. It's what they are. That's what we were. And it's what we are. Because we're still sinners. So if your focus is, is not, as, not as on what you did,
didn't do or what you did is the wrong starting point. But if your focus is on what you do or don't do, present tense, you are on the wrong road. It is the road of self-righteousness. It is the road of, of trying to establish your own righteousness before God by your works, and it will get you to nowhere except hell. You have no righteousness of your own, and neither do I. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's your righteous deeds. Everything we do is, is stained with sin. All of your righteous deeds are tainted with sin. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and love your neighbor like yourself. Tell me one time you've done that. Just one. I hope nothing came to your mind there because you've never done it. The only righteousness that the most sanctified saint has in this life is the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's it. You have no righteousness of your own. Number two. The Pharisee had contempt for others, but the tax collector had contempt for himself. Those who are self-righteous will almost invariably condemn others. Remember again from, from verse 9, Jesus told this parable to those who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And for the Pharisee, the tax collector was everything that he wasn't. The, the list of things that, that he didn't do was in his mind the list of things that the tax collector did. In his mind, the tax collector should have been like him and then it would have been okay. And so the tax collector became the perfect foil, the perfect backdrop to highlight the Pharisee's self-righteousness. And the Pharisee used his own righteousness to condemn the tax collector. But the tax collector, on the other hand, wasn't even aware of the Pharisee's presence. In his mind and heart, it was just him and the Holy God. They were the only ones in the room. And before the omniscient God, the tax collector knew that his sin was exposed. He recognized that he was a sinner, not, not, as, not as, as one who was a, a decent person and made some mistakes, but as a sinner. Not somebody who's a, a decent guy, but a dirty, rotten sinner, through and through, rotten to the core. if we try to measure ourselves with each other and put ourselves on some spiritual pecking order, we're on the wrong track. We're on the wrong track. Even if it's, even if it's by a biblical definition of righteousness, if you are measuring yourselves with others, you are wrong. You have the wrong standard. The tax collector hated himself for his sin. 
He was laid bare before the holy, holy, holy God. And so he did the only thing he could do. Again, he beat his breast and cried out to God for mercy. He went to the God he'd offended and begged him to forgive him. This is the only basis on which anyone can approach God as a confessing sinner crying out for mercy. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, that word that, that's translated confession means to say the same thing. It means you are agreeing with God that, that your verdict of yourself is the same verdict that God has for you. There is no excuse. It's not, I did this because of my upbringing. I did this because that person did that to me. It's, I'm guilty. I'm guilty, God. Please forgive me. Please wash me clean of my sin. That, that is a prayer that God is going to answer. In Isaiah chapter 6, the call of, of Isaiah when he's, when he's brought to the temple, he, he sees the glory of God. And he hears the, the seraphim calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook. The voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And what was Isaiah's response? I'm a pretty good guy. Look at me compared to those other Israelites. No. He cried out, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If you get just a glimpse of the King, of the Lord of hosts, of the holy, holy, holy God, you will not be able to compare yourself with anybody else. Because you realize that before the glory of God, you're nothing but a dirty, rotten sinner. You have nothing to commend yourself to him. Isaiah's only hope, as that of the tax collector, and ours is atonement from the throne of God. So the angel took an, a, a coal from the altar and touched to his lips and atoned for his sin. It's a picture of the gospel, of the atonement that we have in Christ and Christ alone. Again, think of the list that I mentioned earlier, the things that you do or the things that you don't do. Maybe the, the, the ways that, that you measure yourself. In fact, I, I think, and I need to speak to this church, I think there's a particular danger in those who, who are very precise theologically and very careful to have their theological I's dotted and T's crossed, as we, we should have that. But I think there's a danger for us that we can define our righteousness by agreement with a, a particular doctoral standard and condemn others then by that same standard. If we are doing that, we are on the wrong track. But for many, it's even something that's even different from the scriptures. Another standard that is, is alien to the scriptures. We tend to measure others by that standard and condemn others by that standard. I remember years ago when I was in, in Toronto in seminary, and uh, the, the seminary and the seminary housing was in a particularly rough part of town, and there was a, a park across the road, and the, and the park was, was 
was full of, of homeless people and, and, and then, I'm not sure it's still the same today, but, but crack addicts were, were everywhere. And I found myself, when I first arrived, sitting in judgment of these people, of the, the homeless and the, and the crack addicts. And then, praise God, it hit me like a ton of bricks. But for the grace of God, that was me. That was me, but for the grace of God. In fact, I was a drug addict. I've smoked crack. It's only by God's grace that that wasn't me in the park begging for money. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for you. Maybe, and hopefully you didn't go as far down the road as I did, but it's but for the grace of God, go I. But for the grace of God, go you. May we never condemn ourselves, or rather condemn others and exalt ourselves by, by some pretended standard that we're living out. And we never have contempt for others. But may we have contempt for the sin we see in us. Third point. The Pharisee prayed proudly, but the tax collector prayed humbly. The Pharisee stood by himself. Now, there's, there's really nothing wrong with standing to pray. We, we see that repeatedly in Scripture. But as he, as this Pharisee stood apart by himself, it gave a really good vantage point for others to see his righteous display. The King James and the, the New King James here say that he prayed to himself. Now, it could be translated either way, and, and either way, it's, it's not wrong. Because this Pharisee was, was praying, but he wasn't praying to God. He, he was praying to himself. He says, I thank you, God. But then from that point on, his prayer wasn't to God or about God. His prayer had nothing to do with God. He, he appeared to, to thank God that he wasn't like others, but he was really thanking himself. He was proudly praising himself. And he gives lip service to God at the beginning of his prayer, and it doesn't even mention God. Except, in fact, it doesn't even talk about anybody but himself, except when he condemns the tax collector. Again, his list of accomplishments, I, 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 I. Five eyes in one prayer. So this prayer really can't be called a prayer. He's self-reliant. He doesn't think that he needs anything from God. The self-righteous will also be self-reliant. Now the tax collector, on the other hand, didn't dare ask God for anything except for that which he needed most. He also stood far off. But this is a mark of humility here. He was so humbled that he wouldn't even dare look upwards to heaven. Now the saint does have the right to approach God boldly, but nonetheless with a humble attitude. You have a right, have the right, as an adopted child of God to approach your heavenly Father in prayer. But you go humbly. It's not, hey, God, it's not Jesus is my homeboy. It's 
not come without a holy life, for without holiness you will not see God. It's not come as you are. It's come as Christ is. It's come dressed only in the righteousness of Christ. There is no other way to approach the holy God. There is nothing you can do and nothing you cannot do to earn you the right to approach God except trust in Christ. John Owen said, the person who understands the evil in his own heart is the only person who is useful, fruitful, and solid in his beliefs and obedience. Others only delude themselves and they thus upset families, churches, and all other relationships. In their self-pride and judgment of others, they show great inconsistency. Pride is a destroyer, not just of your life, but the lives of those around you. Be humble before the Holy God. To be anything else is insane. The the tax collector knew that the only standard of righteousness is that of God himself. When I taught phys ed in, in Australia, Years ago, I taught primary school phys ed and, and teaching you know, preschools or grade ones, I've used this illustration before, if, if, if they were to jump, you know, on average, they'd probably jump about a meter or a meter and a half. Now, in, in trying to show them the, the technique of, of launch, I'm not, I'm not a very good jumper, but if, if I was to then jump four or five meters, compared to their, compared to their meter, meter and a half, imagine me saying, hey, look at me. Well, the world record by, is held by Brian Powell. It's 8.95 meters, almost 30 feet. All of a sudden, my 12 or 13 feet is not looking so good. But the standard is like jumping from here to Vancouver. The standard of, of Christ's holiness is like jumping the 300 and some kilometers from Kelowna to Vancouver. So all of a sudden, whether it's a meter or four meters or nine meters, it's inconsequential. The difference is nothing compared to the righteousness that is required. All of us fall infinitely short of that perfect standard of righteousness in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the standard. You know, we, we think, we sang earlier, we sang Amazing Grace, that, that glorious hymn. And some of you may know that the background of it, that, that John Newton, who wrote that hymn, had been a slave trader. If you're going to think of, of the top 10 wicked career moves, being a slave trader has is, is got to be up near the top. Because in it is subsumed all the other major things as well. It's, it's murder. There's immorality. There's, it's human trafficking. It's, it's all of those things. And in God's word, that's it's called man-stealing. It's punishable by death under the old covenant. And when John Newton was, was confronted with his sin, he repented and he turned to Christ. And he eventually became a pastor. But he remained aware of his past. Not in a sense of, of yes, there was a sense in which the, the devil tried to condemn him with it, but he was aware of it so that it would drive him to Christ. 
So John Newton said, I know two things. I am a great sinner and I have a great savior. If there are only two things you should know in this world is that, that you are a great sinner and that you have a great savior. If that's all you know, that's all you need for salvation. And again, Jesus is the standard for righteousness. That doesn't mean that, that we don't, that we don't see our sin and, and strive by God's grace to repent of our sin. As Millard Erickson says that no one ever reached the North Star by sailing or flying towards it. But it doesn't change the fact that it's still the mark towards which we press our measure of northernness. We aim for Christ and his righteousness, knowing that in this life, in any life, we will never achieve that standard of righteousness. Well, now more quickly, for Jesus' verdict on the whole thing. This time he describes the tax collector first. The tax collector went home justified, but the Pharisee went home condemned. The tax collector went home justified. Three times in the Gospels, we hear Jesus using these words, three different occasions. He or she went home justified. No sweeter words could ever be pronounced upon you. And from no higher authority. Justified means to be pronounced not just not guilty, but to be pronounced righteous by the holy judge. And Paul's going to develop this concept further in Romans 3, 23 to 26. Part of one of the most important paragraphs that has ever been written down, in the, even in the Bible. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present times, the present times that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Pharisee went home as he arrived, self-righteous, self-confident, and self-condemned. But the tax collector, his prayer was answered. He got the mercy that he was seeking from God. He went home justified. The Pharisee didn't ask for anything and didn't receive anything. But the tax collector asked for mercy and he received it. Will you go home today justified? Will you go home today justified? Will you go home today right with God? Will you go home today clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Are you aware of your sins? Again, not just your past sins, but your present sins. Are you a repenter? The, the Puritans used to be called repenters because they were continually repenting. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. To repent. To walk in repentance. It's good to be aware of your sins. You need to be aware of your sins. If you're aware of your sins, you're on the right track. But being aware of your sins is not the final destination. Being aware of Christ turning to Christ in faith and repentance, 
This is the final destination. As Robert Murray McShane said, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ in the cross. For every look at self, take 10, take 10, sorry, this is just McShane, I added to McShane. For every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. And to this, if I could deign to add to McShane, for every look at self and sin, take 10 looks at Christ in the cross. Yes, be aware of your sin, but let it drive you to cry out to God for mercy. So finally, the Pharisee exalted himself and was humbled, but the tax collector humbled himself and was exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, verse 14b, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said exactly the same thing in Luke 14, 11, as he spoke of humbling yourself at the table. Now, you need to be careful with this because, because you can sit at the bottom of the table and still be proud. You could be humble with your body, but proud with your heart. Again, it's, it's not a matter of being humble. It's not a matter of the position of your body, but of the position of your heart. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. The Pharisee listed all of his accomplishments, all the things that he thought would commend him before God and exalt him before God. He thought he was going to earn favor before God. He was the epitome of self-righteousness. But how does his view of himself line up with God's view of him? But the tax collector, on the other hand, humbled himself before God and was exalted by God. Get it, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 2 Corinthians 10, 17, 18. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. But it's not the one who condemns himself, who's rather who commends himself as approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The Pharisee's judgment of himself was irrelevant. It was irrelevant. Likewise, the Pharisee's judgment of the tax collector was irrelevant. It's not the judgment that others have of you that matters. And it's not ultimately the, the judgment that you have of yourself that matters. It's God's judgment of you. It's God's perspective, whatever it is. If, if you are, are concerned about the opinion of others, or if you're beating yourself up with a weak conscience, it's not your judgment of yourself that matters. It's not the judgment that others have of you that matters. It's, it's by God the judge that we stand or fall. And our only hope before God's omniscient judgment is fleeing to Christ. It's fleeing to Christ. So as we tie this, this together, 
this is not just a parable about learning how to pray the right way. It's not just a matter of saying the right words. We're having, you know, a prayer list. Okay, I've, I've prayed for, for 15 minutes. Got it. I prayed for half an hour. I really got it. Not just a matter of, of anything you do. Not just a matter of saying, oh God. You can do that and still be praying to yourself every bit as much as the Pharisee. This is not about the fruit, it's about the root. It's about what your prayer life reveals. This is not just a matter of buckling down and, and praying the right kind of prayers. It's a matter of having a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ that will show itself increasingly in humble prayers. But I asked at the outset, who, which, one of, which one do you identify more with? The Pharisee or the tax collector? I think all of us, maybe more like the Pharisee than we like to admit, You know, if you found yourself as we've gone through this, you think, that Pharisee. I was even tempted to do this in my studies. like, oh, those Pharisees. It's like, well, hang on a second. I'm being like that Pharisee. I'm actually judging the Pharisees like the Pharisee judged the tax collector. I'm doing exactly the same thing. Notice at the beginning of this passage, Jesus... Luke doesn't tell us here, very wisely, Luke does not tell us who Jesus is speaking to. Quite often, we, we know in the scriptures, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he's speaking to the disciples, he's speaking to the crowds. He doesn't say who he's speaking to here. He says he told this parable to some who trusted themselves they were righteous. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And, he, and then at the end, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone, not just Pharisees. We can all be self-righteous. We can all be proud. We praise God that through the, the, the opening of our eyes by the Holy Spirit that we're, we're not as proud as we used to be. We're not as proud that we're going to be less proud tomorrow that the Holy Spirit sanctifies our hearts and and brings words like this into, to bear in our hearts. But what is a proud person to do? What is a proud person like you or me going to do when we realize that our prayer life doesn't measure up? That we're still sinners. We're still self-righteous. By God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray as the tax collector did. God have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, even if that Pharisee had to add an addendum to that, yeah, I, I do all these things. God, I'm self-righteous. Have mercy on me. He would have gone home forgiven. And you can go home forgiven today. You can go home justified by crying out to God for the mercy that can be found only in Christ Jesus. This is your only hope. This is my only hope. None of us will ever live the righteous life that God commands of us. 
Our only hope is to flee to Christ for the forgiveness that can be found in him. Let's pray. Pray together. Gracious and merciful God, Lord, we know our guilt and our sin is ever before us. Help us, Lord, I pray to see our sin more clearly so that we might be humble before your holiness, that we might flee to you for the grace and mercy that can only come from you. Lord, grant us faith, grant us repentance. Help us, Lord, to be humble before you and that our humility would then adorn the gospel that has saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name.